in the preparation for today's sermon, I was just kind of struck at how well the, the, the hymn that I talked about spoke to, to this, this topic. But as I'm sitting here worshiping, I, I'm just, every song we sang today speaks directly to, to what we're talking about today. Um, and so when you come, I hope that, you know, one of the best things you can do in, in preparation for your worship, if you want your worship experience to really explode and expand, get online, go to the website, and open up the bulletin. It's printed for you there on, online. And just look at, the, look at the, the hymns that we're going to sing. Spend some time in prayer and just read through them and see the rich theology, the, the rich truth that is being offered to us. As we, as we sing and as we gather together. Uh, for now, I'd like to ask you to please stand, and those who can, to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. And I'll remind you once again, this is the one and only time in, in the worship service where we are hearing directly from the Lord himself. Beginning Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to, to battle, David sent Joab, his servant with him, and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purified herself; she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, "I am pregnant." So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And, and Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king, gifts from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. He did not with all the servants of the Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David that Uriah did not go down to his house, David had said to Uriah, Have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. They're sleeping in tents out in the fields. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in the presence, and he drank, so much so that he made Uriah drunk. And in the evening when he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And, jo and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that, skipping to verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done, had dis, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. May God richly bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. Heavenly Father, this is a disturbing text, to say the least. Um, may we see ourselves rightly in it, and we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Have you been here for this, this sermon series? You may have noticed that up until this point, the, the record of David's life has been almost entirely positive. David has been portrayed as this sort of golden boy. Um, he's a leader of men. He's a mighty warrior. He's a man of incredible integrity. Um, in last week's sermon, in his treatment of Mephibosheth, if you weren't here, go back and listen to that. But in his treatment of Mephibosheth, we saw, that Dave, we saw David at his very best. Um, and in that, in his very best, he, we saw, and I talked about it, he serves as a beautiful example of God's gracious mercy. He, he serves as a, an example of God's covenant love. He, he, he serves as, as a foreshadow of God's promised Messiah. Uh, he, he's a foreshadow or a picture of, of Jesus. We also saw last week that the Lord had thoroughly solidified David's reign as king. He had united the 12 tribes. Um, his, his enemies, for the most part, have been subdued. There's still some fighting to do, as we see in today's passage. But, but we also know that the trade routes are open. They are secure, and, and trade is flowing back and forth to, to Israel. So all of this combines to make an incredible time of peace and prosperity for Israel. So when we left off last week in chapter 9, life's pretty good. But all of a sudden here, in, you know, chapter 10 is about some battles that they're settling. But chapter 11, all of a sudden, almost instantly, we find that something has changed. David is no longer innocent, but instead he is self-indulgent. It appears that the years of, of conflict have just sort of worn him down. While those under his command are at war, David is living a life of leisure. He is sleeping in late. He's taking naps. And he goes from being a servant to one who is being served. Instead of being consumed by, by the love of God, he is consumed by the lust of a woman. Instead of you know, the lust for women, I guess. Instead of, instead of leading others in worship, he is leading others into sin. Instead of leading a nation in war, he, is, uh, he has become a peeping Tom. Um, He's using his position of power to defend the weak. Instead of using his power to defend the weak, he's using his position of, po of power to exploit the weak, to have an affair with, with another man's wife, and then she gets pregnant. In an attempt to cover it up, David calls her husband from the front lines of the battlefield. Now, his name is Uriah, and and he is no stranger to David. Uriah was one of David's mighty men who had been wandering all those years in the wilderness with him, who had been fighting and defending David against, against King Saul. 
And, and, and now, while he's off fighting David's battles, David's back in Jerusalem sleeping with his wife. As we see in the text, David calls Uriah back to Jerusalem in hopes that he will sleep with Bathsheba and then think that the child is his. After receiving Uriah's intelligence reports from the battlefield, David tells him, you know what, take a couple days off. Go spend some time with your wife. You've earned it. And he sends him away in verse 8. It says that he sends him away with this gift basket. He gives him away with gifts. In other words, he sends him away with, with some wine, some aroma, scented candles, some massage oils, and a Barry White album. Right? <laughs> but Uriah refuses to enjoy such pleasure while his comrades are in battle. And David, and David attempts to get Uriah to think the child is his. They just fail collapse. So in desperation, David turns to the more sinister plan B. David sends a letter to Joab and the commander of his army with directions to have Uriah killed. And, and here's how sick and twisted David has become. David has Uriah, his longtime friend, carry this letter. He has this faithful ally carry his own death warrant. And while you think that the circumstances can't get any worse, when Joab carries out David's orders, when he, when he has Uriah killed in order to conceal the assassination, in order to divert people's attention away from Uriah, and in order to assure that the, the cover-up is successful, Uriah arranges it so that not just Uriah, but other men are killed as well. Now, if you go back and you look at... It, it, and you'll see that, that David has a real history of avoiding unnecessary bloodshed in war. He has a history of, of being very cautious with the lives of his men. He has, he has great respect for the value and the dignity of those who serve under his command. Normally, David would have been furious over such carelessness. But here, he finds the death of these men welcome news. This is just tragic. And this is really dark. And, and, and in an attempt to sort of somehow comfort Joab, the commander of his military, he sends him this message. It's in verse 25. He says, don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours one, now one, and, and then now another. In other words, in order to, con to comfort Joab, David offers him this cliche. Well, you know, it's war. It's the way it is. People die, it's war. It's just the way it is. In other words, David, he tries to simply move on with his life. He, he just wants to, to put this whole sword affair behind him and hope that it just goes away. In verse 26, it says that his wife, Uriah, the wife of Uriah, knows it doesn't even use Bathsheba's name. It says the wife of Uriah. It continues to refer to her that way. The wife of, and even in Matthew chapter 6, when, 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 when uh, Bathsheba is listed in the genealogy of, of, of Jesus, it says, and, and, uh, it says and, and the wife of Uriah gave birth to. So even in the Gospels, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't avoid this. Verse 26 says that the wife of Uriah mourned, and when the mourning period was over, which was typically about seven days was the typical mourning period, official mourning period anyways, 
Um, when that was over, David sent and brought her. So this is David's doing. He sent and he brought her to his house. She became his wife and she bore him a son. So, so the weight of all of this is on David. It's not on Bathsheba here, all right? But I want you to notice something. While David says to Joab in verse 25, look at it with me. He says, do not let this matter displease you. See that? Our passage ends with this very ominous declaration at the end of verse 27, at the end of this chapter. It says, while David says, don't let this matter displease you, look at verse 27, it says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We're going to look at that next week, but for now let me say this, just because evil seems to be running a successful course, it doesn't mean that God is not watching. Now the story of David the Bathsheba we're going to see is just the beginning of one painful event after another that's going to befall David and his family. This child that he and Bathsheba have are going to die. He's going to die. Uh, David's son Amnon is going to end up raping David's daughter Tamar. And then his son Absalom is going to kill Amon. And then, and, and then eventually try to overthrow David as king and then die himself. And so from here on out, David's reign is just marked with this, this instability and conflict and sorrow. So you've got to ask, what happened? <laughs> I mean, how did things just go so bad so quickly from between chapter 9 and chapter 11? Um, well, think about it. I mean, David was God's chosen. David was chosen by God to be the leader of his people. I mean, over and over again, he has demonstrated this incredible demonstration of faith and trust in the Lord's provision and the Lord's ability to make things right. Over and over again, he has served as a picture and a foreshadow of God's coming Messiah. Um, not only was David a, a student of the Scriptures, we know that the Holy Spirit used David to write Scripture. And, and he's often referred to as a man of, after God's own heart, so... But here, everything falls apart. question is why. Before I answer that, I want to say something else. And I, I've said this recently. In fact, I've said it a few times in this series. And I, I, I try to say it on an occasional basis. People who have never read, if you're somebody, if, most, if people have never read the Bible or taken the time to really study it, they will almost always assume that, that the Bible is what you might call the key to better behavior. Or and they almost always assume that it is filled with testimonies of great men and women for us to emulate. And, 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 that, it's sort of, and that it's by following these people's examples, by, by better behavior that we acquire for ourselves God's blessings and we acquire for ourselves eternal life. But here's the thing, that's not what we find in the Bible. It's just not. If you sit down and you read and you study for yourself, you're going to see, and this is absolutely unique in all of ancient literature. And it's pretty unique even in modern day literature. You will see that the characters of the Bible, especially the great heroes of the faith, they are never given a pass. The Bible is brutally honest about them and nothing gets swept under the rug. The shortcomings of our biblical heroes are never ignored, but rather they are exposed. I mean, Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a schemer. Moses was a murderer. 
In the New Testament, the disciples are, are unreliable. Peter's a waffler, and, and Paul is the chief of sinners. Now, while the characters may at times try to cover up their corruption, their sin, their flaws, and their shortcomings, and their brokenness, the Bible just never does. It doesn't. If you take time to read, if you take time to study the Bible for yourself, you'll see that, that no one is faithful. That no one lives in a way that obligates God to bless them. Nobody lives in a way that obligates God to grant them eternal life. And you know what? <laughs> it is my job to stand here and remind you of this every week. And the reason that I have to stand here and remind you of this every week is because you forget. It's like as soon as you walk out the door, you think it's about you. We're just so quick to forget that this, this God continually calls and redeems. He gives grace. He blesses people who, who don't deserve it, who don't seek it, and, and who don't really appreciate it once they get it. It is true of King David. We see that in our passage today. He was a great leader. He was a great man. He was a man of faith, but he was deeply flawed. We see this in David. We also see this in, in, in Robert Robinson. And you know what? Our only hope is that it's true of us as well. But here's the thing. More often than not, people of the 21st century typically don't believe that the kind of darkness that resides in David resides in us as well. People today don't believe that. People of the 21st century have this assumption that people are basically good and that evil is sort of a byproduct of circumstances. I mean, when somebody commits a terrible crime, we blame it on political, economic, or social oppression. We, we, we say, well, he must not have had a father figure or a lack of education or a lack of job opportunities or, or he was picked on when he was a kid. And I, I want to be very clear about something. I am not suggesting in any remote way that these things are not factors, that these things are not contributing factors. I mean, they certainly are. But what I am suggesting is that we have rejected the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of original sin. We are a culture that has rejected the idea that we are not basically good. Oh, well, he's a good person. We hear that all the time. Basically, he's a good person. Or God knows my heart. Yeah, God does know your heart, and it's not good. That doesn't mean you're all bad. I'm not saying that. You see, our society just doesn't believe this anymore. In a very real sense, many of you don't believe it either. Most people in this room, the vast majority of this people in this room, would claim for themselves the title Christian. Now, theologically, we believe that we are accepted by God because of our faith in Christ. We believe that, that we are saved by grace because of what Christ has accomplished in, on the cross on our behalf. That our sin was placed upon him. And that God took his wrath out on Jesus instead of us. And we gather here each Sunday to worship the Lord, to offer thanks 
to remind ourselves of his mercies and declare to, to one another and to declare to the world that our peace, that our security, that our confidence, that our contentment is found in nothing other than the gospel message. I mean, that's why we're here. That's what we say. And in a, in a very real sense, we believe that. In a very real sense, it's true. Um, at least function, it's true, but, but functionally, more often than not, our self-image, more often than not, how we see ourselves is really based not on who he declares us to be because of Christ, but rather on who we think we are in comparison to somebody else and how we measure up to everybody else. <clears throat> I've been a Christian, I think, a little over 35 years. And I can't tell you how many times I have read today's passage. No idea. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard this passage taught on in Bible studies. or I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard it preached on. or I can't even tell you how many times I've preached on it myself. But I can tell you this. Every time I read this passage, every time I read it, including this last Monday morning when I went in and I sat down and read it fresh for the first time, every time I read this passage, every time I think about the depth of David's corruption, every time I think about Uriah and the others who David sacrificed in order to cover up his own wrongdoing, and every time I think about those men who died, and, and not just them, but, but their their mothers and their fathers and their wives or, or their children. How just appalling this is. Every time I read that, my first instinct, my, my initial response is horror, disappointment, and disgust with David. And there's a sense in which I ought to be horrified. There's a sense in which I ought to be disappointed. There's a, way, a sense in which I ought to be disgusted by, by this horrific thing that David has done. But it is also my first instinct to think to myself, you know what, I'm just not capable of doing what David did. I'm not capable of doing something like that. I'm just not that bad. I mean, I've done some pretty crummy things in my life, but I'm just not that bad. I mean, I'm not capable of murder. But the truth is, and here's what we need to understand, the truth is, deep inside every single one of us resides what you might call seeds of, of jealousy, envy, anger, pride, lust, and insecurity. Inside every single one of us resides seeds of self-centeredness, self-pity, resentment, and bitterness. Now just imagine if those could become, what those could become if they, if they fell on the right soil. It's true, you may not be capable of murder, and, and, but it's only because you've been rooted in, in a right kind of soil. I mean, you point yourself in a different kind of soil or, or, you know, circumstances change. Who knows what you could be capable of? The truth is the potential to commit even the worst of sins imaginable resides inside every single one of us, even those who have been converted even those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. 
Now, if you look at David with disgust rather than pity, it can only be because we think that we somehow are incapable of doing what he did or something we deem equally as bad. Tim Chester, in his book, 2 Samuel for You, he writes this. He says, listen, we are all just four steps away from murder. Sin can take you down paths you would never have dreamed of walking. Nobody decides one day to have an affair. Nobody decides one day to just steal from their company. But here's the thing. Here's four steps. If you neglect your duty, if you gratify your eyes, if you indulge in your fantasies, if you fail to flee temptation, then that may be where you end up. That's what David did. You may say, I, ne- I would never do that. You may be thinking, but, but please don't think that you're better than David. David didn't think of himself as a potential murderer. He didn't wake up at the beginning of 2 Samuel 11 with murder on his mind. It was a thousand miles from his thoughts, yet murder is where he ended up. He didn't get there in one step, but rather it took only four. The neglect of duty, the gratification of the eyes, the indulgence of fantasies, and the refusal to flee from temptation. What we see in, in First and Second Samuel throughout this whole series is that David, he was, he was a man after God's own heart. But he was still a man. We see that, that he was a, a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. He was a man of deep convictions. But we also see that he was a sinner. We see that he was a man who had been chosen by God to lead his people. But he also was in desperate need of a savior. And if this is true of David, what in the world could make you think it's not true of you as well? If David was capable of such heinous acts, shouldn't we at least be somewhat suspicious of ourselves? You see, a Christian is somebody who acknowledges the sinful potential of their own heart. A Christian is someone who looks to others and can honestly say when they look at those news clips can be disgusted and appalled by what this person has done but could also say quickly but there, help me out, but there by the grace of God go I. A, a person, a Christian is somebody who is actually and personally humbled by the darkness of somebody else's sin. Our only hope is that we have a merciful God. Only hope is that he has done for us what we cannot do ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am quick to think, and I've often heard people and even my brothers and sisters in this room say, you know what, I'm not that bad. If we're not, it's only because of your mercy. It's only because of your grace. And the potential is still there. And while we may not do what David did, we got things that we struggle with in other areas. Lord, may we see your grace and your mercy, your abundant grace and your mercy. Can we 
may we see that we are fixed upon a mountain of your grace. Fixed upon it. In other words, we cannot get off. But it is a mountain that you have built and that you have provided on our behalf. We praise you for these things and we ask that you would remind us of these things on a daily basis. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.